and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we embark on a thing we would never do in real life, going to a hotel. So scary. I thought we've been to a hotel. There's a pandemic. We don't go to hotels oh, anymore. now. <laughs> I mean, like today, I was remembering here the podcast now. convention. No, no, no. We've been to hotels. I've right. been to hotels, but not now. Okay. Even if they weren't deeply haunted or whatever this is. We watched 1408, but before we get started, how was your week? Weeks have become fairly the same Yeah. in pandemic conditions, oddly enough. There's a lot of reading, and in my case, a lot of writing, and rediscovering movies I hadn't seen in such a long time, some of which are awful. But mm. um, but yes, it's it's been very introspective. I'm a little gun-shy about getting back out into the world again. Yeah, I'm not same. sure how I'll handle that when it... And especially because comes. nobody else seems to care about anything. And right. We were running errands and we saw people running along the beach with no masks on, with no protection, huddled in little groups. While we are peaking right now. Right. So, Just hey, everybody, put a mask on. The lack of concern, it seems, as if people were only paying attention to the rules in so far and then... Just decided they're when not going to do When it's warm outside, we don't have to pay attention right. to the rules Right, it's very anyway. strange. Yeah. So what not, was your week like? Not good. It's good. Working. Working. Okay. Working. Trucking along. Uh, watched a pretty good movie. You want to talk about it? Well, we can talk about it afterwards. What I meant it? this one. Oh, this one. <laughs> okay. I think this might be my favorite movie that we've watched for the show so hmm. far this season. Yes. Well, when, when would the season start? Stephen King. No. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm debating in my mind whether, and this is a really good follow-up to The Shining. It is. Uh, uh, some people think it is a retread. I would disagree no, with no, that. No. It visits some of Stephen King's typical themes. But because all of his stories. Exactly. Yeah. It's a Stephen King story. So right. that's what we came here for. Uh We're going to talk about this movie. We're going to talk about the alternate endings because, y'all, there are... A bunch of them. Uh, I ended up watching two of them. You have seen two of them, but not the big bummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really wanted to go in a mist. Who is he? The director. Okay, the director. A, a mist format. But and let's start with the story. Okay. Let's. There are sort of two legs I want to get to before we get to this movie. And All the right. first leg is the story. That is... 1408. Okay. And it was first released in an audiobook collection called Blood and Smoke in 1999. In 2002, it was collected in written form as the 12th story in the book Everything's Eventual. That's, once again, for those keeping score, my favoriteest title of his. He. Refer, Stephen King himself, in the introduction to the story, refers to it as uh, his version of the ghostly room at the inn story, mm-hmm. which is a haunted hotel or motel room in horror, horror fiction, which is a trope that is a, especially for short stories, that is a fairly common horror short story motif. That's fine. He knows it. He knows, he knows the world in which he writes. Uh... He also used chunks of this story in the book on writing to show his editing, which is really interesting. But mm. we don't have to go into that so much. But I just think 
that it's interesting that he used a thing that was en- ended up being published as a template for this is the before and after. So in the short story, Mike Enslin, our main character, is a haunted book writer, or haunted, haunted place book writer. Okay. Okay. He writes all these 10 nights in 10 haunted places. He sells books that are tens. Books with less than 100 entries are not going to get sold, but that's fine. Well, that's this from was a, a former bookseller. Right. This is 2007. Also, we should point out that he wasn't always this writer. No, he wasn't. But we'll get into that, okay. I think, um, in the actual film. So what I just wanted to point out was, in the short, short story, many of the things... First of all, there are fewer deaths mm-hmm. attributed to this room, and many of the things that happen to him in the book don't happen in the movie, i.e. they pick different haunted shit to happen to him in okay. the screenplay, which I think is interesting and good. And the reason is because some of the things that he could have put in the short story are not photogenic. And what are we doing? We're making a movie, so mm. let's make a thing that looks good on film, which they did choose things that look good on film mm-hmm. for the movie. And in the book, the way that it ends, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, is he gets out, he gives up writing, he has acquired various physical and psychological problems stemming from the stay in the room. He notes in a way that uh, Samuel Jackson's character kind of notes in this one that there are not ghosts because whatever's in that room is inhuman, horrifically inhuman. In the end, our our main character sleeps with the lights on, has removed all the phones in the house, and always draws the curtains before dark. He cannot stand the shade of yellow-orange at sunset that reminds him of the light inside room 1408. Mm. So he is deeply scarred by by this day. We'll leave the story, and we'll come to the movie. 1408, Released in on June twenty second, two thousand and seven, because it's a fun summer romp. Right. <laughs> they do release a lot of horror movies in the summer, well, and I never understand. Horror it. movies have, and we've discussed this before, I think. Uh, John Saxon, the actor who character actors talked about how he when he started, you got in with through westerns. You did westerns. That's how you got into the film industry. If you were a young actor, mm-hmm. um, and a movie like *The Magnificent Seven, where everybody from the cast, from Steve McQueen to Charles Bronson uh, to James Coburn, all those people became stars, starting in westerns, in one particular western. He said that somewhere in the seventies, it switched from being the western to being the horror film. Oh, interesting. Okay. And he did this as the actor who plays the dad in *Nightmare on Elm Street*. Right. He's like, well, all the young actors suddenly Johnny Depp and the other like. Wait, but why? Why? I'm talking about summer release. Why are right. these not because all coming they out moved in October? From being <laughs> horror movies that were at the end of the year to mainstream movies that could make money. I guess that's true. And once it started being a mainstream film, a summer blockbuster, for instance, The Exorcist. I guess right. was that a summer blockbuster? That's wild. That's it was a blockbuster. I and feel you like I need it to be raining to go see that well, movie in the you, theater. You also that was a lot smarter than most horror movies that you get. And so a film like Poltergeist, which wasn't particularly brainy, it was just sort of a funhouse ride, you could totally see that as a summer film, where it's one thing after another. Mm-hmm. And this film shares something in common with that, where there's one spook and one scare every couple of minutes. 
And you can see something like The Haunting being kind of a fun house ride too, where every 10 minutes or the every remake? five minutes. Or the Excuse original. me, not the, re- the Haunting, the... Um, the film, The Conjuring. I'm sorry. Oh yes, yes, yes. As and they, I believe those are released in right, the summer. A, summer a lot of the Blumhouse the horrors are released in the summer. The Haunting, the original one, would be a movie for adults. Yeah, the, that's a December release. Right. Uh, Christmas is also a good time for ghosts. So let's. It, this this movie is directed by Michael Hellstrom. Mm-hmm. He is a Swedish director. His 2003 film, Evil, was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. All right. He directed a movie that I didn't finish (laughs) called Derailed with Clive Owen and Jennifer Aniston. Right. There was a particularly heinous rape situation, and I was like, I'm going to not with this. And I bounced. Uh, So that was sort of my... Uh, oh, and then he direct. He went on to direct The Right in 2011, which we've both seen, mm-hmm. and Escape Plan with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone in 2013, a film I have not seen, but has apparently spawned several follow-ups. <laughs> so that is the man behind the uh, story, or behind the, the camera, mm-hmm. and he made big changes to the end, which we will get to, because as I said, there are many, many endings to this movie. Now, the second prong that I wanted to get to before the actual breakdown of the plot is the reason that this movie works, and his name is John Cusack, because this movie is 90... John Cusack alone in a room. (laughs) Like, it's mostly him. And he is at a point in his career where he is able to... He can go full adorable lunkhead that we love so much. Mm -hmm. And he can also go full malignant jackass that we want to punch in the face. And he is... Walking the line between the two of those things, where he is kind of a dick, but also pretty lovable. (laughs) So, it's pretty perfect for this role. He's very watchable. I did make an observation while we were watching the movie, Mm -hmm. which was, well, you almost never see him in a full-body shot standing Mm -hmm. in the middle of a room, which you do in this movie, because he... I believe Hollywood wants you to believe that he is a perfectly reasonable height of 5'10 and a solid but not imposing build. But that is not how he is built. (laughs) That is not the truth of John Cusack. He's like the opposite of Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise, who wants to be big and buff and the tallest person on the set Mm -hmm. and will never be. He's 6'2", we found out. He has been a serious athlete for over 20 years, right. uh, kickboxing and apparently other things. He is, in fact, a surfer. He is a very, uh, he's a big friend of the martial arts in general. Yes. He helped form the Jet Center in L.A., which was Benny the Jet's dream, kickboxers, mixed martial artists, all sorts of things. And you actually see a little of that, oddly, in this film. 
he rarely gets to do that in a movie, even in a film yes. like Con Air. Right. We're going to see... No. Yeah. We're going <laughs> yeah. to see someone who has less physical ability do all the action scenes. Well, no, he because basically... he said, I'm only doing this movie if I can wear sandals the whole time. Right. So you can't do big kicks in sandals. That's not... But I think Gross Point Blank <laughs> is the only film where you actually get to see him do Which it. Which is great, y'all. And of course, the first will say anything, which is how he got involved in kickboxing yeah, I've in the first place. Yeah, I've never seen it. He plays a kickboxer. I know the sign. Or the, um, the song and the... Right. Yeah. But I have not seen that movie. Uh, so he is... So it's safe to say that a lot of your enjoyment of the movie will depend on whether or not you like him. Whether or not you like him. and right. But I think that he is generally likable. He is... He's interesting because he's been pretty outspoken politically. He's He mm -hmm. is a member of the Democratic Socialist Party and he's right. very anti-war. Okay. Uh, he's spoken out against... Uh, all of the Iraq mm -hmm. wars and the uh, war in Afghanistan, as well as against uh, Obama's use of drones, mm -hmm. uh, which a lot of people decided to just kind of be quiet on because at least he's a Democrat. But yeah, no, no, no he spoke I mean, out against that. I have too. issues with it too, but I also have issues for the other side of that opinion. So, yeah. So, and he was mm -hmm. pro Snowden, like he's pro yeah. sort of rooting out corruption and, and whistleblowing and things like that. Uh, he may have tweeted some anti-Semitic stuff last year. Uh, anti-Semitic stuff last year? Yes. I know that he got a lot of flack for Max. And I don't know if it's tied to... I would assume that anything that would be a, presumed to be anti-Semitic was tied to that film. No. Okay. Um, oh, right, where he played the de art dealer that told Hitler no. Or well, who, you're right. <laughs> um, which is a, an interesting film because his point was supposed to be that if we keep seeing him as a Hitler, as an unapproachable monster, then we're never going to see the next Hitler coming. Right. Right. Um, he wasn't always this right. demagogue. Right, he, exactly. He started as a person. He right. was a disenfranchised artist. He was one of those angry young men. So he, his point of view, it seems, in releasing that film is to say, we have to take the onus of... Hitler is a devil. He was just a guy, but he was a guy who found a voice for these other people, and that's what made him dangerous. I know that there was a lot of controversy about that film at the time, and I think it actually kind of derailed his career. I think he was also like, I don't need to be... He also was like, he was aging mm -hmm. out of leading man right. age, right? I'm trying to find that one. When Do you remember when it was? Max? Yeah. Um, let me take a look. Because he was in it too, right? Yeah, he's a, he plays the art dealer, and he's oh, know. here it is, two thousand and two. No, it didn't, because he then did Identity, Runaway Jury, Ice Harvest, uh, This, mm -hmm. uh, War Inc., twenty twelve, The Raven. Like he's done a lot of stuff since then. Okay, um, but he started wanting to do sort of weirder things, I think. Uh -huh. um, and then what I wanted to see was whether he was also an associate producer. So he didn't write that, but he has co-writer and producer. Um, credits on a lot of stuff and a lot of the stuff that he's been in lately are direct to VOD which is true of a lot of people yeah. now you know since 2014 or so uh, but uh, no there was a tweet it was an anti-semitic tweet featuring an image of a large fist with a blue star of David crushing a small crowd of people next to it a quote misattributed to Voltaire to learn who rolls over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize the quote mm -hmm. in reality is a comment by a white supremacist and neo-nazi so let's not use that quote in the tw the tweet 
He added the word, follow the money, which is never a great right. sign, right? He later blamed it on a, ha a bot, then defended it, then apologized, and then deleted it. So I I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Um, so it's shitty. <laughs> we'll right. say that. It's shitty. But his watchability makes this movie work, and it makes the ending as we saw it interesting. So let's get into it. Y'all, this movie was, was pretty plotty. I'm going to do my best to get us through it pretty quickly. But I do have a fairly long document full of text. So, Mike Enslin, that is our protagonist. That is Mr. John Kizek. He, we start, and he's going to this bed and breakfast. As soon as he walks in, the proprietors are gushing, 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 gushing. Here is all the hauntedness that we have. And he's like, cool, great. Can I get my key? I'm going to go. Nah, I'm going to go. And they're like, oh, right. Here's your key. And then he sits in the room, attic room, and he's like, this not haunted. Then he looks at his little EMF detector. Tick, tick, tick. This not haunted. And then he sleeps like a baby and then leaves. But he gives... The place, what is the shutter scale? Is that what it's? It's skull, uh, skulls, It's I think. skulls, it's but it's, a, I think he says on the, on the shutter scale, uh -huh. it's zero to ten skulls. He gives like four, five, five skulls. No, I think he's, it's six and then he downgrades it to five is what happens. <laughs> and then he goes to your and my favorite scene in any movie, a book signing. They're like, oh, hey, look. A terrible bookstore employee with well, his feet up on the desk. I, I, I don't like scenes like this often in films, and I'm careful to include scenes in my writing, as you know, that show what this is actually like. Any employee who treated a guest reader like this would kind of be in trouble for it. Given that at your last bookstore employment, there mm -hmm. were people who would play chess at the register while yeah, but we never customers had a reading. waited. Right. We never had any readings there. We did. I mean, what, the, the area where you and I are both familiar with this, yeah. uh, there was actually sort of a handler that would come in with them, too. Yes. And so, well, some of them. Yeah. Not always. This no. is a small reading. There are uh -huh. four people that show up. There's nobody doing the thing. Yeah. I, but that guy would have seen the flyer. Like, it, yeah, it didn't. It didn't ring yeah. true. I think the actual reading itself was kind of funny. But that first encounter with the with the bookstore dude, employee, yeah. it's like, yeah, that guy wouldn't. Yeah. So he goes in and he's like, "I'm here for the reading," and they're like, "Oh, okay, cool." And then he like reads off of the flyer onto mm -hmm. the PA system, and then we see Mike talking about the places that he's been to like a very sparse audience right. of like four people. And then he's like, any questions? And they were like, do you believe? And he's like, yeah, nah, <laughs> I do not believe in ghosts. Uh, but it's like he, he's gotten snarky. He didn't, mm -hmm. I don't think go to these things intending to tell people, no, everything I write is bullshit. And everything that these people say about their no. locations is bullshit. But he's like over the it. The impression that I get is that he's fed up by this point. Yeah. yeah. And it's a pity because there's some very enthusiastic people. Well, then he's signing. And mm -hmm. the last person to bring up a book is a young woman named Anna. And she has a novel in her hand. It is not Ten Haunted Anythings. Mm -hmm. It is called The Long Road Home. And she asks him... 
because she was very moved by the relationship between the protagonist and the protagonist's father, mm -hmm. if that was based on reality. And Mike is like, eh, no. And later we get only the briefest glimpse, but Mike Enslin's dad was an asshole. That is what we get. <laughs> but very briefly. We, right. it's, we're not dwelling in that. But the very close bond between father and son was not existent in his actual mm. life. Then we are in L.A. where Mike is a surfer. Because why wouldn't he be? And there's a plane flying. He's on a board in the water. And there's a plane flying overhead with a banner. And he looks up to read the banner. And uh, a wave sneaks up on him. And he is whooshed into the water. Pushed down. Bonked on the head by his surfboard. And then dragged out of the water by also his surfboard that's why they put the leash on there and then we see him coughing up the water on the beach all by himself at which point i turned to you and i said is this a jacob's ladder scenario well, the man who comes up and approaches him after this is that person a lifeguard or is this just another surfer just another surfer okay. no it was just a hey are you okay man right. and he has caught like i said coughed up the water out of his out of his uh lungs so Miraculously, he is mm -hmm. okay with no uh, CPR needed. Right. And uh, then he goes to the post office in a little uh, wicker fedora, which, not wicker, but like straw fedora, mm -hmm. which I don't endorse. <laughs> it's a weirdly small hat for his body. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like your head's too big for that hat. Uh, and he goes to pick up his mail. He's a regular fixture at this place. Which makes sense because you don't want fans and things knowing where yeah. you actually live. And most of his mail is soliciting for people for people people soliciting him to come to their haunted golf course or whatever. Right. And he finds in this stack of mail today uh, one postcard from the Dolphin Hotel in New York City. On the back is a single warning message: "Don't enter 1408." He looks at the number, he adds the numbers up, and they add up to four, to 13. And he says, that's very clever. So he's like, huh, maybe this is my next thing. So he calls his publishing uh, company, and he says, I'm going to go to 1408. That's going to be the, the last book, mm -hmm. or the last stop for the book that I'm working on right now. Uh, his editor, publisher, same, all together. Named Agent. Sam, Agent, maybe. And mm -hmm. uh, he is played by Tony Shaloub in he's only in two scenes. He's in three scenes in the alternate ending. Okay. But he's only in two scenes in this. And uh but he's very good at all the times. So but he he's must the kind have of been man it must have been like a people booby. Yes, he is. Uh and he says, That sounds great, but are you sure you want to come to New York? Mm-hmm. Uh, some bad shit went down, and are you still cool? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm totally over it. And then he researches the dolphin, and he finds some newspaper clippings, because he is, you know, actually kind of a journalist. <laughs> he mm -hmm. is doing the legwork. Uh, so he finds newspaper cl clippings of the incidents from 1408. He finds the first victim of the room, a wealthy businessman who jumped from the window while staying there just a week after the hotel opened. Then he calls the hotel itself 
And this is one of my favorite parts because he calls the hotel and he just cold calls this hotel and he says, I'm calling about 1408. And they're mm-hmm. like, one second, sir. And I was like, wait a minute. They just have a person who only discusses it. Like, like anything about 1408 goes to this one person. They put him on hold immediately. And of course, we know that it's Sam Jackson as mm-hmm. Gerald Olin who picks up, but we don't know that yet because it's, he's not, he doesn't say motherfucker at any point during the phone call. So. Uh, it's hard to tell his voice. And he says, I would like to stay in 1408. And the voice says, unavailable. He goes, ha, that's funny. I didn't even give you a date. Uh, next week. Next month. And they're like, unavailable, unavailable, unavailable. And he's like, mm. And he, I think he does one final pitch and then they just hang up on him. Right. And he's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> so, he ends up calling, uh, I guess he talks to his publisher and he's like, find me a way into this. Like, they're not letting mm-hmm. me in and I'm going to get in. And they have a lawyer or at least someone who says he's a lawyer. That's a weird thing because he's like, make some time to come talk to Mike. So Tony Shalhoub is talking to Mike again over the phone and he says, there's a an old federal statute that says if they have a room available, if the room is unoccupied they mm-hmm. have to run it to you and i'm like there's no way there's a statue mm-hmm. that says that but that's fine we're it's a little bit of world building but i was just like was there not a better way to that just it felt real clunky to me but i was like all right well we he got it so he goes he shows up it's a very nice hotel, old, but nice, mm-hmm. five-star probably hotel in New York City, in Manhattan, the Dolphin Hotel, right? Uh, and he goes up to lo- to uh, check in. The receptionist is like, can I upgrade you to a suite? And he's mm-hmm. like, nah, give me 1408. And she's like, ugh, I gotta call my boss. And then we meet Sam Jackson. All right. And Sam Jackson is Gerald Oland, Olin, and all he wants is for John Cusack to not stay in this goddamn room. <laughs> so... He's got a, he says, come to my office, have a drink, look at all these gross pictures, basically, is what happens. Mm-hmm. So there's all of these pictures. He's like, okay, so you found out, you found the, you know, suicides. But what about the 20 natural deaths that occurred in the room? And he goes, uh, 20 natural deaths. <laughs> Which, mm-hmm. even that was enough to be like, um, hmm. This seems bad. 56 deaths in total have happened because of room 1408. Uh, that's a lot of deaths. Apparently no one has ever survived staying in it. That is the the supposition that we get. Okay. Right? I think so. I don't know that we've... And not just nobody's ever survived. They've survived an hour. Oh, nobody's ever survived longer than an hour. Right. And so this yeah. goes to the extent where even the cleaning staff... Uh, right. Goes mad inside the Goes the mad inside their... Um, or inside the uh, room. Inside the room. So, as much as he may try, Sam Jackson cannot get Mike to give this up. So he gives him the dossier of... It's a thick dossier mm-hmm. of images, and he uh, goes and gets the key. It's a brass key. And Mike's like this is a nice touch. And he's like, mm, electronics don't seem to work. Hope you don't have a pacemaker. <laughs> I'm like, ooh. Because apparently what has happened is Olin has decided no one else stays in this thing because right. 
he's had to clean up four deaths. And after the fourth one, he's like, and one, I'm done. One mutilation. Right. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't let people stay there. Uh, when asked, he's like, yeah, the owners don't seem to care. They just pretend it's not a problem like they pretend we don't have a 13th floor. Which, so we know this is on the 13th floor. Right. Fourteenth. Right? You're going to pretend your hotel doesn't have a 13th floor. The 14th floor is the 13th floor. That's how numbers work. So, uh, also, he will not go any further than the elevator. He brings them up, and then he's like, you're on your own. because." And we do clean it. We clean it once a month. There's a team of two maids and me. No doors ever get to be closed. And we're in and out in 10 minutes like it's a hazmat area. Once someone got caught in the bathroom, we got her out in two minutes. And, he, and Mike goes, and she, let me guess, she was dead. And in very beautiful Sam Jackson fashion, he just looks at John Gizak like he's a fucking idiot and goes, no, blind. She had stabbed out her own eyes, and was giggling hysterically. So, woof. Uh, there's a... Oh, and then, you know, there's the whole thing about, oh, I don't believe in ghosts or whatever, and Sam Jackson very clearly leans over and says, I don't say ghosts. I said, that's a fucking evil room. That's our fuck for this movie, because I do believe it is PG-13. Well, this goes beyond just him not believing in ghosts. Yes. Because his notion is that there are no ghosts, there are no long-legged beasties, right. no things that go bump in the night, right. and if there was, there's no God to save us from them. Right. So he's a person who's completely lost faith in anything. Right. Um, and you know he's doing this work to have that faith kick-started. He right. wants nothing more than that faith to be kick-started because his, his daughter, mm-hmm. as we find out very shortly died of a childhood illness right. that they couldn't do anything about when she was maybe, what, 10? Uh, it's hard for me she to She was young, that. but... And uh, and at that point, he just lost all right. faith. Like, he just... Even telling her... Like, he gets mad at his ex-wife that they even told her about heaven because mm-hmm. he's like, it's fucking fairy tales. Well, goes, his notion is, in the flashback, what kind of God would do this to yes. a person, which brings yeah. up a whole point for our other podcast. Yeah. However... Um, but yeah, and that's kind of a theme that happens in this film, almost as if he's going to uh, learn how to, yeah, which is a theme in Stephen King, I think. Yeah. That we saw with Desperation, you know, that was handled in such a ham-fisted way there. Ham-fisted, yeah, yeah. So Mike gets off the elevator and heads towards the room. He doesn't have his... I, Maybe he's got a bag on his shoulder. He had declined help he from has the a laptop, so bellboy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where his... I can't remember where his luggage is. But he's got the the dossier, mm-hmm. and he's looking through it, and he's kind of glancing up at the numbers of the rooms, and he's going towards mm-hmm. 1408. And he ends up making a whole circle around it, coming back to where the elevators are without hitting 1408 the first time, which is easy to sort of overlook that's what's happening, but that is right. what's happened. And then he sort of focuses more on finds his way to 1408, goes in. Uh, he's got a little... Uh, what's it called? Recorder. Okay. That he's talk- he talks into. He um, mm-hmm. dictates. And he starts dictating. This room is safe. This is the furniture, a couch, an armoire, floral wallpaper. Uh, he checks. There is a copy of the Bible in the, in the nightstand. 
Now, when he throws it down, we see an image of it, and it looks like Holy Bible has been right. embossed backwards onto well, the... Well, so what it, uh, in effect, is, um, is that we get a reversed image of Holy Bible, but not just backwards. It's almost as if the Holy Bible is written backwards on the back of the Bible, is effectively the image mm. you're looking at, because the spine was on the wrong side. Oh, interesting. And okay. when we were watching it, I re-ran that again because I'm going, where's the... What are we looking at? Right. It's like, it's it's reversed in a way as if to say, here's the front of the book, you turn the book over, and there it is in reverse on the back of the book. Oh, interesting. So it was a I very weird... I what think it, what it actually was, was they uh-huh. had taken a mirror image, flipped that mirror image, and put it back on the thing, but it made it, like, the, but the spines were weird, and we were supposed to just look, like... <laughs> If you just looked at it, it would be written backwards, but they I didn't think print the thing. That, but I'm not quite sure. I'd have to look at it again because it doesn't very much look like you're looking at the back of someone's yeah. head. And it, but it's like the first effect that we see where we're like, that's weird. Well, aside from him not finding the room. What, right. Because right. Up, up until a certain point, these are all tiny incremental things. Yes. Um, the turn down service business that happens. We haven't even right. gotten there yet. Okay. That is, that's probably my favorite thing that it does. Mm-hmm. So he... Gets out and he looks, He get, he's like sitting there just kind of waiting for something to happen. And he goes over and looks out the window. And then he turns around. He sees some, or he hears some movement behind him. He turns around and there are two chocolates on the pillow. Mm-hmm. And he goes into the bathroom and the, the toilet paper, which he had torn some from, is refolded into that like In hotel right. tuck. And he's all... Oh, good trick, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then he like sort of was like, well, then there has to be someone here, 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 and he like chases through the. It's mm-hmm. a suite. There's a there's like a living room area and the bedroom area and the bathroom, uh, and no, there's nobody there. And then we get little flashes, weird things, but nothing big, really. Right. It starts getting hot. He starts sweating. He starts taking, he takes off his jacket. He's a man who will wear a loud sort of Hawaiian style shirt under a blazer. It's an interesting choice. (laughs) Uh, So he takes off his shirt. He's starting to, we see him starting to sweat. He calls the op on the operator or on the phone. He calls the operator on the phone and is like, you need to send somebody up. And he thinks that it's, the management fucking with him. So mm-hmm. he thinks he's going to get pushback. But he doesn't. They agree. And the mechanic comes up. And the mechanic is uh, great. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Hold on. Uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Mm-hmm. He was on The Wire. And he's in a movie called Cedar Rapids. That it made us want to watch Cedar Rapids again. And he will come to the door. And, even, and it's hard for Mike to open the door. But he pulls it open. Mm-hmm. And he walks over to the thermostat, expecting that, that he's being followed. And the guy is like, I'm not, I'm not going in there. I'm not fucking going in there. Any moron can fix this. Pull off the thing, tap the little mercury thing. And he does that. And the power, or the, the you hear whoosh. Right. So the air comes back on. And he's like, great. He turns around. Thank you. And the dude is gone. Like, he's just like, I don't need to be here for this. Uh, at which point, Mike goes back to chilling pours himself another bottle of the bourbon that Sam Jackson sent up with him. No, there was something about the bourbon label he said. Oh, yes. The bourbon label says in French, the seventh death. Mm-hmm. 57th death. The 57th death. 
and he would be the 57th victim death. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was trying to find, like, it's a, it's a cognac. Actually, it's not bourbon. That's right. It's a champagne cognac. Because we paused it. Because right, I was like, right. what is he drinking? Uh, and then suddenly the little ubiquitous radio alarm clock pops on with Karen Carpenter singing us, We've Only Just Begun. That is. And then the clock just says 60 dot dot or dot, six, 60 colon zero zero. And then mm-hmm. it starts a countdown and he's like. No one lasts more than an hour. And uh, so then, like kind of immediately, this high-pitched, this, this, I also like this gag, actually. There's a really high-pitched noise, and then he can't hear anything. Yeah. And it's communicated visually very well and also in the sound very well. He sticks his head out the window, um, and he still can't hear anything mm-hmm. and as he's coming back in his hand is crushed as the window falls down now first of all also this window they, i understand that nobody wants to go in there but they should put bars on the outside of well, it you would imagine after someone jumped out of that window that you wouldn't right um, and it and we see apparitions many apparitions jumping from this mm-hmm. window it's crazy how many apparitions go out and right. and you could it is a straight shot down and it is very, like, I could climb out this window, and mm-hmm. I have no dexterity whatsoever. Um, but his hand is crushed. He goes into the bathroom to run water, punching all the things. So there's blood splatter fucking right. everywhere at this point. And uh, he turns the water on to run water over this cut, and the water gets super hot, and then the faucet blows off, and then there's just steam and hot water going everywhere. And he throws the towel in there, and he calls the the operator and he's like i'm hurt i want to leave now i'm coming out you're you're send someone up here and the operator is like don't talk to me like that you need to remain calm uh we'll send someone up but nobody's gonna go up there and then he tries to get out and he can't get out the key breaks he unlocks it but the doorknob breaks (laughs) like he just he can't get out and then he start then we start seeing specters like like ghostly images. Mm-hmm. They very much look like um like old film. Yeah. Right? That is the way that they decided to ghosts. That's fine with me. I'm fine with that. I didn't like it. You don't like it? No, I don't I, like it. I don't it. like it because it doesn't look like a ghost. It looks like uh someone is using an old image. Um yeah, it's almost yeah, I didn't. I I like it if you think of ghosts not as a the soul of a person Mm -hmm. but as a repeat as a like a like a time but there's different see one of the things that when we start seeing the manifestations it is there's like a two dozen separate gags that get done over the course of the film and some of them didn't work as much for me and that particular image so you don't like that one what do you like um I like the little ones at first, the little things. I like the actual clock that is ticking off the hour that he spends there because right. it puts something over his head right. that he's going and to And I always like to that. compare it to, what, like, am I watching a real-time, mm. is this Nick of Time now? Right. Are we watching a real-time film? Because I like a real-time film. And then there's the, uh, later in the film when he's crawling in the vent mm-hmm. and there's something creeping after him mm-hmm. and his attempt to kill it just ruins it, but it keeps going. It's really horrible. Yeah. There's a couple of them like that. 
Uh, he looks out the window at one point and he's trying to <laughs> yes, get the attention of somebody across the hall, which it looks like he gets the attention and then he sees that they're just aping him and mm-hmm. then the, he sees that it's him. Right. And then he sees someone behind that person attacking him and then he is almost yeah. attacked that by another one of those sort those of filmy... returns um, more up than in the, Yes. He keeps showing up again. Um, and I didn't really feel like we got a backstory of that guy. No, I think he's supposed to be... Well, no. With 56 deaths, they didn't go... Right. It wasn't like in Rose Red where they're like, and here's yes. the cataloging of all of them. There were a few, but but not, not very many. I think the other gag that didn't work for me was the freezing room. Okay, yeah. That was a little bit too much. There's snow. There's snow falling your. I like things like he throws the lamp out the window to try and uh-huh. get some attention, then the lamp just disappears. Yeah. That's that interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he now thinks that maybe he's hallucinating. He's been he ate one of the chocolates that was left. Right. He's been drinking this bottle that was furnished to him by Olin. He must have been dosed, and if he can just ride out the high, mm-hmm. he'll be fine. Uh, then the TV turns on and he sees. Scenes from your life when, that made you want to kill yourself. <laughs> so he sees his daughter, he sees his wife, who's played by Mary McCormack, who is a woman who I think of as not Maria Bello. I don't, I don't know why. She's like, I always think she's somebody else. It's it's weird. <laughs> and uh, and their daughter, and we see them all happy, and then we see her, her sick at different points. Uh, and then he's like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go. And then he decides he's going to try and make a break for it in true Stephen King fashion by getting out on that ledge. We've seen it before. We'll probably see it again. I'm sure. He pulls a real Christopher Hitchens move where he talks into the little recorder. If I fall, I have not committed suicide. The room didn't win. It was, you know, I slipped or whatever, which is similar to when Christopher Hitchens, noted atheist, was like, if on my deathbed I pray to God, know that the rational part of my mind has left me, and that is just the irrational ravings of a madman or whatever. And I'm just like, dude, way to cover your ass on the way out, I guess. Uh, Then we have a ledge scene. There are no fucking windows. He cannot get in. The only window that he can worked get really well to, for me too. You, did, you like I, that? I too? like that one because it it what it was is that there's a conscious force trying to uh, not trying to but successfully blocking him at every turn. Yeah, and that image works because when he eventually finds a window, it's the same window that he left. It's the same window that he left, so and then the real, woman is jumping mm-hmm, out of it, right. like past him. We've seen her a couple of times. There's now. a real kind of fun house in a bad way. Yeah kind of uh, hall of mirrors thing where everything's sort of distorted and weird. And, and they do that the same, they do that with images too of the, you know how in a hotel there's a map of you are here, yeah. this is how to get out? Yeah. The map changes as well. Um, and then, you know, and it also happens when he does get up into the vents because what, what he's crawling over, he expects to see other hotel rooms and it's not, it's other rooms from his past. Right. Right? So we see the baby and we see the, the, the degeneration of his uh, daughter's condition. Yes. Is mostly what we're getting. Right. So then, like, he's back in the room. <coughs> Sorry. And we get a bunch of ghosty things. The walls mm-hmm. bleed. Um, the, there's, a, like, an elevation drop. Uh, there's a whirlwind. Uh, there's a very overdone bit involving a ship at sea that's in a picture. 
that then floods the entire room. Well, that's later, actually. Okay. So first he sees a picture, or like he has a real, uh, the temperature starts dropping, and this right. is where you don't like it. And he sees an old man in what looks like a mental hospital, mm-hmm. and that old man says to him, hold on, it's cryptic. i got to find it. As I was, you are, as I am, you will be. And that we come to know is his dad, presumingly telling him, I was a bad father, you were a bad father, and now I am an old man with dementia, and you will be the same. Or dead. Maybe dead. Maybe he's just saying, I'm dying and you're dying. And he uh, tries to call out. This is when he pulls up the video call. He tries to Skype his wife, who lives in, the same, or lives in New York, and she's like, you look like a ghost. I can't understand you. And then, and then he loses the call. Oh, no. Then he goes up through the ducks, crawl, 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 falls back down into room 1408. <laughs> so he can't get out through the window and he can't get out through the ceiling. Then it is totally covered in snow. The floor plan has changed. He tries to burn various things, but it's not working. Uh... I'm sorry, the, the, I know that that was a quotation from Latin. Oh. And I was trying to find who it was from. Yeah. And it was an epitaph. Um, it can also be translated as, once I was alive like you and you were, it will be dead as I am now. That feels and like a thing that Virgil heard. Or like the great Virgil of a, uh, It was a common epitaph on Roman military officers. Oh, Jesus. I, I remember seeing it, hearing the first time I saw it on an adaptation of uh, Julius Caesar. And that's why it struck right now. I was like, wait, I know that I've heard that before. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, and that's the only thing that his dad says. And we just know that it wasn't a good relationship. Mm-hmm. They, Like I said, they don't really delve. And then he sees... Then then he and, and uh, Sam Jackson have a like a weird powwow where Sam Jackson's like, I fucking told you, dude. Right. Like, I gave you every chance to not do this. What he said really was, take these pictures, stay in 1404, mm-hmm. the layout is identical, take your pictures and get the fuck out. And right. he was like, no, 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 my readers need me to... I'm like, okay, well, you they don't. Your readers, all four of them at the bookstore. Well, and then he says, you know, your books aren't hard to find. It was <laughs> They're on the clearance rack at any, right. you know... Rock bottom remains. Right, right, exactly. And... Uh, He's like, there's a reason that people believe in this stuff. It's for hope. And then that frustrates Mike even more. He mm-hmm. tries to hit him, but he just punches a wall. Whoops. That's going to hurt. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to give up. I'm just going to die here and freeze to death. And then his laptop flickers back on. And it's Lily. She says, I sent the police there. They're in 1408, and you're not there. And he's like, oh, fuck. I'm in a pocket dimension. I'm screwed, and I'm going to die here. Hey, y'all, you know what a pocket dimension is? Separate dimension next to ours. It's like in a pocket. He says, uh, I love you. I am going to die. I am so sorry. Uh, and she's like, you're being crazy. And then this thing comes over and it's like an unfriended or a fucking weird current horror thing where the image of him is saying, you know what? You need to come down and we need to talk. Right. I, I'm being silly. 
come down, we'll hash this all out. And he, this is not what he is saying. This is just what his avatar on the in the computer is saying. And she's like, I'll be there soon. And so she's on her way. And then the avatar winks at him, which is a, a lot. Bit much. And then this is when the room like freaks out the yeah, most. Okay. And there's a ship at sea. And that's uh, in the painting, and then that storm becomes a tempest that takes over the whole right. room, spills out of the painting. So this is what it... it it's I a lot, but it, it actually is done pretty well. It's done really well, but it feels like it's going overboard. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that's where something... I, it reminds me in some ways of the difference between the 1962 or one haunting and the remake. Yeah. Like one was subtle and the other one just wanted to throw stuff at you. Yeah. And I think that it tips over sometimes. Yeah. I'm pretty okay with that. I signed up for mm -hmm. all of it, right? But Stephen King's also always been kind of, you know... Here's everything. Here's everything. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, uh, there's a really funny story about a producer who didn't like working with, Roger St with, excuse me, with Rod Steiger, the actor. And when he was asked why, he says, because for the same dollar he gives you the same performance... He either goes hysterical or he, he's doing it for the same amount of money, which seems weird until you realize that sometimes there'll be people who are just willing to go all in when it's not necessary. Willing to go all in and going all in against the director's wishes are two different things, too. Like, well, but I mean, I kind of feel like sometimes he's willing to just, you know, go for it and with this bravado, you know, the hand of God or something. In the China, in um, literal sometimes. The stand, stand it's yeah. like it just goes like, oh, you could have, you could have gone a little subtler than that, but no, we got the all the water leaving the picture and swarm, and you know, swirling around the room. The room. Well, then yeah. of course I was like, okay, now he drowns, and we did find out earlier that yeah. a man had drowned in there, right, uh, in, in a bowl soup. of chicken soup, right. which would be difficult to do. Uh, and I'm like, oh, no, it is a Jacob's Ladder scenario right. because then we're back on the beach where we were right. before. And he looks up and it, and he can now read the message on that banner that he was trying to get a glimpse of before he got conked. And it says to get great life insurance call XXX1408. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, then he's in a, then he comes back too and he's in the hospital and Lily's there. And he's like, am I in New York? And she's like, no, you're not. You never went to New York. What are you talking about? Uh, and then she's like, I've never heard of the dolphin. I don't know what you're talking about. But it looks like they're maybe reconciling. They haven't spoken for right. a while, I guess, since she um, just walked out. Since their Is daughter's what death. We hear, what we find out, rather. And then she's like, well, maybe you should write about this sort of near-death experience that you had, mm -hmm. which is what they, they're sort of considering it, right? And he's looking up the names that he remembered... Um, for the deaths in 1408, mm -hmm. but they now, they all have died in different ways. 1408 is not mentioned. The dolphin is not mentioned. Right. And finally, he finishes writing up whatever this is, and he's going to the mailbox or the post office, which we've already seen once, to send it off to Tony Shaloub. And the man at the counter isn't the normal dude, which we knew he he was like on a first name basis with. Right. It is the bellboy from the dolphin. And then he looks, and there are workers at the post office who are also working at the Dolphin. And then everything starts sort of being torn apart, mm -hmm. and everything spins around, and then he's doodly, 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 back in 1408, and it is destroyed. 
And this is when it really goes for the heartstrings because he sees his baby daughter, Katie, and she's walking through this decimated room with bleeding feet towards him, just saying, don't you love me anymore? And he's like, of course I do. And he hugs her. And then she dies, is limp in his body. And then the fucking... Limp in his arms. Limp limp in his arms. And then the fucking clock radio turns on again, playing fucking Karen Carpenter. We've only just begun. And she bursts into like dust. Yeah. And the look on Cusack's face right when they do that is so impressive because he's holding nothing, right? Yeah. Like, that is a CGI. Well, part of it was CGI. I think the bursting was, but it seemed like there was a practical object on the floor because her head's still rolling Maybe. Around, but like, it's kind of gruesome when you think about it. Her it, ashy head is rolling uh, on yes. the floor. But, like, his response to that is mm. so good. Right. Where you're just like, oh, fuck. He is crushed and pissed at the same right. time like no you're not taking her from me again is basically mm-hmm. i think he might even say it right and then the room sort of resets uh it's been an hour and so he's sitting at a chair he finds we find him sitting at a chair we don't know how he got there we don't know how the room just reset it's possible he's just been sitting in this chair the whole time right and this has been an entirely internal trip that he's taken. Mm-hmm. That's certainly a possibility. It would have been cheaper for the effects, but that's fine. <laughs> and he answers the phone, and he's just like, why don't you just kill me? And the sort of bitchy operator that we've been dealing with is like, because all of our guests enjoy free will, sir. You can either repeat this hour over and over forever, or you can take advantage of our express checkout." And then she hangs up on him. And then there are newses, multiple news, news eye, so many nooses hanging from the room. And he sees images of himself hanging from him, them. And he's like, uh, um, I'm not going to like kill myself over this. And then the telephone rings and he says, or no, and the telephone rings. The operator asks, are you ready to check out? And he says, no. And I think he says something like, you're, you can't tell me what to do or mm-hmm. you can't make me or whatever. And then he gets a call back and it says, your wife will be here soon and I'll be sure to send her right up. Or like in five minutes. And Mike is like, this doesn't have anything to do with her. And then he goes back to the not bourbon. He picks up the cognac. He picks up a cloth napkin, because this place is fancy, goddammit. And he builds a Maltov cocktail. And he's like, you know what? If I go, we go, <laughs> basically, is his attitude. I've lived a selfish life. I will die an unselfish death. And I'm taking you fucking with me. And he's like, I don't know what's real. I don't know what I've been through. I don't know anything. But I know that the Zippo lighter makes real fire. So he lights the Maltov cocktail that he has built. Mm -hmm. And then he picks it up and he takes a couple of steps and then he chucks it into from the from the living room to into the bedroom wall where the clock radio is, where we've only just begun. I think it's still doing it then. And then the flame goes and he starts his review again. The decor is in tatters, and the staff is surly, but on the shiver scale, he gives it 
10 skulls. Now he has, we should say, lit the cigarette that has been behind his ear the whole time. Mm -hmm. He has quit smoking, but he keeps it for the uh, for Armageddon. He lets uh, Sam Jackson know that earlier because he declines a cigar. Uh, and he throws the, uh, an ashtray, like a what looked like a big crystal ashtray. Mm-hmm. He says, 10 skulls. And he throws the ashtray out the window in the other room, causing a backdraft and making the explosions happen. Downstairs, we see that his wife has just arrived on, arrived on the premises. People are being, like the fire alarms are going off. People are being, you know, escorted yeah. out. And she's like, my husband's up there. My husband's up there in 1408. That's where I want to call an end. So with that backdraft, mm-hmm. there are now up to four endings of this film. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the one that we watched which is on the IFC. We watched this off of IFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also one. There are several versions of this on YouTube in high, excuse me, in high definition with various endings. So okay. one of them definitely has this one. So Mike is in for a 1408, and he is. There's fire coming at him. He's sort of crawling through the um, through the mess on the floor towards the door. Um, he crawls sort of under a table and the whole room starts going up in flames. Like, and he's talking to the room, like that it turns its sprinklers on and he's like, it's not going to be enough. Like, like, that's it. You're going out. Um, and he, he's like sort of laughing to himself. And I think he says like, Katie, I'm coming home or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the firemen bust in, they've been given his number and they pull him out. Um, Outside in the hallway, he says, don't go in there, it's cursed. Uh, And then the firemen drag him out, and we see Olin down in his office. He should have been evacuated, but he's still in his office, and he's drinking, and he's like, well done, Mr. Enslin. And that's the last we see of him in this. He wakes up in the hospital. It's a mirror of the previous time when he woke up, and he's like, where am I? And she's like, you're in New York. There was a fire, don't you remember? And he's like, everything that I've been written about, writing about and has been dismissing is real. Like, right. I, I was wrong. It's all real. And then it looks like Lily then has moved to L.A. to be with him because mm-hmm. the room that, or she's there and he's going to move back with her. Right. There's a, yeah. Because they're packing. Oh, and this place that they're packing is definitely California because it's fucking ginormous. It's definitely not in New it's York so City. Sunny. It's also very sunny. And she finds a box. And she's like, this one smells like smoke and it's nothing but bad memories. Should I just get rid of it? And he's like, sometimes you can't get rid of bad memories. Um, You just got to live with them. And he pulls out his recorder and he pushes play. And it's all... Right? But then you hear him saying certain things and then you hear Katie coming through with daddy don't you love me anymore and that whole interaction again at which lily hears and looks at him like shocked like Mm -hmm. holy fuck that is our daughter's voice i recognize that voice and then he turns to her and gives her this very enigmatic look Uh and to me i'm like it felt very much like the end of inception i was like i don't know if he's out like, I legitimately was like, this could him, that because he gives her like this, just the most incremental smile. 
It's very weird. And I watched it a few times this afternoon, and I was like, what does this mean? Hmm. Okay. So I, th- there's readings, I think, in this ending where he got out, he died, or um, he's back in there still being tortured. Like, the, right. any, any of those three. Originally, test audiences felt that the original ending was too much of a downer because uh, he dies. <laughs> he dies. And during the funeral, Olin uh, tries to return his recorder and whatever other um, his personal personal effects, effects mm-hmm. to Lily and Lily is like I don't want it this is where we see Tony Shalhoub like give her a break and there's a it's we it's a weird scene because the character that we see trying to give her this stuff back and trying to tell her he was a hero because he saved us from this evil room is very much not in line with the character that we had seen earlier. Mm-hmm. He seems like a fanatic. It's right. It's because he's real low key about the facts that he's so this given. Is yes. Okay. This is Sam Jackson. When he is interacting with Mike at the beginning, he's like, "Look, this might sound like bullshit, but it's not bullshit. But I'm also not sensationalizing it. This is fucked up, and I don't like it." But here he's like, "No, no, no. He saved us and." You know, the room was evil, and he, like, it was really, it it was very odd. And then he, she's like, uh, Tony Shalhoub is like, can you just give her some space? She's been through enough. And he's like, okay. And he goes back to his car, and he's looking, and he plays the tape. It's the same tape. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he hears, daddy, daddy, from outside. And he looks in his rearview mirror, and he sees a little girl playing um, sort of in, on the graves behind right. his, where his car is parked because he's still he's there at the um, the burial at the cemetery, and sh- and he then he like swishes his mirror and you see Cusack's burnt corpse in his back seat looking at him mm-hmm. and he like yelps and then the little girl is joined by her father and he like shakes it off puts everything back in the box and then drives away. And that's how it ended originally. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, and then you see 1408 from the outside. The windows have been blown out. Mm-hmm. And the room is gutted and burnt. And you see Mike, but he's like the film. Mm-hmm. He's like a ghost now. Okay. And he's looking out. And he's smoking that cigarette. And then you hear Katie saying, Dad, come on. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. And he turns around and he walks sort of into the wall. That doesn't sound like a very um, depressing ending either, frankly. Well, I I think they wanted him to survive. At least he put him with his daughter. But, um, yeah, so that is the two main um, endings. There's a second alternate ending using elements from both. Mike dies. Mm -hmm. Olin remarks, well done, well done. Instead of the funeral scene, the sounds of a funeral are dubbed over shots of Los Angeles. Lily and Sam, who is Tony Shalhoub, are sorting through Mike's effects. He returns to his New York office and discovers the manuscript that Mike wrote wrote about 1408. As Sam reads the story, the audio from Mike's experiences in the room is heard in a final scene. His office door slams shut, and Mike's father says, 
father's voice says, as I was, you are, as I am, you will be. Okay. Um, and then a third alternate ending. Mike survives. Lily moves to Los Angeles with him. When he plays the tape of Katie's voice in 1408, Lily hears it and looks shocked. Mike stares at Lily strangely. That is, I don't think that's a third alternate ending. I think that's the theatrical ending because he does look at her really mm -hmm. weird. And that's the end. That's the end of the movie. You know, over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Several endings to the movie. So that's 1408. What did you think? I, like I said, some of it worked better than other things. I think that there's almost too much going on in the room. There is a lot going and, on. And I, I, um, I know that at one point you were mentioning, oh, you've saved money on using essentially most of the film uses one set, but then they flood the set. They flood the set and they burn it. So there must have been several yes. versions of it that they got used. Um, and I, I kind of like the subtler things rather than the, the more spectacular things, I guess. But I think the film works overall, although now I'm really confused about how it was supposed to end. Well, in the story, mm. he survives and is deeply traumatized, right. right? So I think the film takes a happier note. There is, I, I like the way, the, the ending that we saw, mm -hmm. because I like that um, he's vindicated, I guess. Yeah. Like, you you kind of sense that she's like, yeah, 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 you went through something terrible. Right. But she's also like, how much of that bottle of whatever did you drink? And, yeah. you know, you're, you've had grief. You walked out on me. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure it was bad, but well, let's be realistic here. Yeah. And then she hears her dead daughter's voice on that recording. And she's like, oh, so what you said was like true and stuff. <laughs> So what did you feel about it overall? I, I mean, you said that you that was your favorite film that you've seen. So far, I think I really, really liked it. And right. I think it really hinges on that that lead. Right. Like, I think Cusack makes or breaks this. And I like the use of Sam Jackson. Yeah, he wasn't used necessarily. Anybody could have played that part, but that added a little bit extra when he played the part. Yeah, I, like, when Sam Jackson tells me I shouldn't do a thing, I think... Right. I probably shouldn't do that thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a gravitas to him. Uh, even when he's not shouting motherfucker, you know, at the top yeah. of his lungs. Which, you know, I'm welcome to that too. But So, yeah, this movie was the most successful up to this date, financially, Stephen mm -hmm. King adaptation really? that there was. Okay. Yeah. It made $132 million on a $25 million budget. Uh, and yeah, until it, I think it's the, it's the most. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the most uh, financially profitable of his films. So that is fourteen oh eight, y'all. Don't go. If Sam Jackson tells you not to stay in that room, stay in fourteen oh four. Also, we never found out about that lady with her weird old fashioned pram. Um, there's a lot of stuff where it felt like either there was missing material or they didn't develop it more. I or, think it might know. have just been like, this looks creepy, let's do this. Because at I, one point, like, there's a baby, there's a woman with a pram that's mm -hmm. from, like, the 40s. Like, right. a very old-fashioned pram, which also, I know, are fancy for rich ladies now, so I get it. Um, and there, she's like next door to him and she, he hears the baby crying and tries to get the attention and the baby just gets louder and louder right. and louder. 
uh, which is, you know, the, the, the room taunting him some more. So, And I like the idea that the fucking room is just bad. Like, it's not, it wasn't turned bad by Satanists. Well, this is, it wasn't. This is very much um, following Shirley Jackson's lead. We don't have a reason yeah. why Hill House is bad. It's just wrong. <laughs> yeah. And the house itself is so, yeah, making it a room where all these different things happen. But, yeah, it was a very interesting film. I enjoyed it. Oh, Katie Wal- Kate Walsh was supposed to be his ex-wife, but she had scheduling conflicts because she was on Grey's Anatomy at the same time. Uh, yeah, so that is 1408. Next up, guess. Mm, I have no idea. It's a sad. Sad. We're going to watch The Mist. The oh, Mist. Actually, I really enjoy The Mist. The Mist is next up. So everybody get your tissues out. It's a, it's a rough ending. <laughs> and that It's a is, rough movie all, all around. It is. Um, monster movie, though. This yes, wasn't a monster it's a lot movie. of fun. And there's the, the, it has one of the best performances, I think. We don't get a lot of, of women in horror performances that are beside, you know, the girl in the nightdress. Are you dress. talking about Marsha Gay-Harden? Right. Uh, the girl in the nightdress getting chased up a tree by a werewolf, or um, they're usually either... Or a eye- final girl. Right. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of sort of eye candy stuff to women in horror films, and this was... This Not is that. a performance, if it hadn't been for a horror film, she could have nom- been nominated for an Oscar. She should have been nominated in any way, because... Yeah. Anthony Hopkins was nominated. Yeah, but that that's a rare thing. It is. Horror but it films don't be. get a lot of recognition. I don't like it. I think the only one before that would be ah, uh, let's see. Maybe uh Ruth Gordon and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Playing Mini Cast of it, which was a hell of a great part too. But uh yeah, it doesn't happen often. So this that film should have gotten or that performance should have gotten a lot more recognition. Yeah. Yeah, so next week, that is what we are going to watch. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, do you have anything to recommend to our dear listeners? Um, I'm not sure. I think... Uh, okay. A film that I saw this last week that I actually really did appreciate was Dora and the Lost City of Gold or something. It's so fun! It was. It's very funny because I'd just seen um, a film from my childhood... Tarzan and the Lost City of Gold, <laughs> and it was very similar in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But there was there was something very. Uh, it was much more appropriate. I feel like there we're not looking at people in other cultures as a source of treasure that we have to steal. Right. Without looking at them, the, no, it, you definitively don't want to do right. that. And, and that's uh, and it was really well done. I kind of appreciated it. I, it there was a, a lot of. Um, indigenous language right. being spoken and, and sort of taught, which was very cool. Yeah. And they were able to take this sort of animated character who becomes animated at one point in the film again. And they were able to do a really good job of respecting the, the people who grew up with her and not um, and not sort of mocking them because it would be very easy to take something like that. Yeah. And make fun of it or mock it or but do something inappropriate. But you want to bring those people in. Right. That is, that is how but you, you do get... You see that a lot. You see that, uh, like, for instance, when the Muppets were brought back, there was a lot of humor that people had issues with because it didn't feel authentic to the original Muppets. Right. And you didn't have that problem here. Everything no. sort of felt like, at the worst, a very gentle teasing of the way that she keeps turning to... Nobody. Breaking the fourth wall. Yes. And talking directly to Can them. Can you say delicioso? And then her whole family is like... 
who is she talking right. to? Right. So there's a lot of that. And as somebody who I used to watch it with my son when he was really little, and um, and so the, a lot of the stuff that was familiar there, it becomes terribly funny when you're watching it, and they're acknowledging, yes, this is all very silly, um, including her talking to a backpack or a monkey. And the caliber of actors that are in this film, and even the tiniest parts, or as yeah, voice performers. Or as voice performers. I don't want to spoil it for you because there's one that's there's a great moment. Yes, it's very good. Where it comes you're out like, of nowhere. Yes, you're yes, like, so. wait, who is that? <laughs> so yeah, if you grew up with it or you enjoyed it, actually, it's very funny. I, I really thought it. I, but remind you, it is a kids movie, so there's a lot of uh, amongst the co-stars. There's a lot of overacting and. You know, throwing up your hands like, "Oh my God, I'm in the jungle," that kind of thing, which yeah. can get old. But um, but it, it was really well done, and it it respected its audience. I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. So, do you have something that you want to recommend? If you have HBO Max, oh, the TV series, or the it's TV series. Mm-hmm. Love Life with Anna Kendrick right. uh, has now completed its run. I don't know how often they dropped things. I By the time I went to watch it, they were all there. So they're all there now. Uh, it's a 10-part sitcom, romantic comedy thing. It's pretty good. There's a lot of good people in it. Like I said, it stars Anna Kendrick. I, I find her eminently watchable. So mm-hmm. uh, I was in at that. And it's about, you know, a young woman in New York and her finding her love, the love of her life. Her person. Mm-hmm. She goes through all kinds of things to get there. Uh, it's interesting because she will never not look 17 to me. Like, she yeah. looks very young. And we see her go How from, like, 22 to... No, when we start, it's 2012. Uh-huh. And we go all the way up until 2020. Okay. So she's playing an eight-year... Okay. Span. She probably is supposed to be 32, 33 at the end of it. Um, well, maybe even a little bit, maybe like 35. Um, so she goes from being like a tour guide at a pop-up to being like, to owning an art gallery. Like, so we see a bunch of different pieces of her career and we see how that blossoms she gets married she gets divorced spoiler alert uh the guys that she is with are all uh interesting acting choices like actor choices uh they're all very different which i think is very cool and uh yeah it was just sort of something that i didn't have to think about too hard and i just enjoyed and felt fuzzy at the end of okay i like it's good fuzzy feelings are good fuzzy feelings are good so Anything else? I'm trying to see what the myth. She's thirty-four. Okay, then that's... she's probably basically playing her own life, right? Like her own age range. Age range for for that. Then. All right. Let me see. Oh, it's on Netflix. The Mist is on Netflix, everybody. So that's now, a way to watch it. What you have to be careful of is that you're watching The Mist, the film, not The Mist, the television program. Yeah, don't watch the TV show. We're going to talk about it later. We're not going to watch it in detail because no, we already did that. I am. Um, and I'm not doing it again. There's um, It misses the central point 
I recently, uh, to, to give you an idea of what oh, bothered hell. me. Oh, hell. You're right, because the one on Netflix is the TV right. show. What bothered me, I, I recently read a... Um, oh, yeah, maybe, because it's, it's a rentable. Uh, a book by Dennis Wheatley, The Haunting of Toby Jug. Unfor- it's a really good suspense novel. Unfortunately, it's very jingoistic, um, and at times outright racist. But it was written in nineteen in the nineteen forties. Okay, where it's set there. It's about an airman who is uh, bedridden after an airplane crash, and his uh, his guardian is using witchcraft to drive him insane. Well, that's rude. Okay, so <laughs> okay. it was a very suspenseful novel. Okay, the problem was it was only adapted once. It never got made into a Hammer film as they intended. And when it was, Robert Pattinson played the young airman, which was fine. And the director, for some reason, chose to remove all the supernatural elements from the story. So it just became... So it just made a, made a torture. A straightforward drama about a man who's been driven insane by his guardian, which is far less interesting and far shorter. And I feel that there's a parallel with The Mist, in that everything that this horde of monsters coming out of the darkness that were threatening the characters, are now reduced to shadows in the dark that they're not really sure are there. Right. And so it winds up taking a lot of what made it entertaining or a lot of what made it scary. Yeah. Because <laughs> The Mist is not psychological horror. No, this is just, you know, no. punch-in-the-gut horror. Well, it starts with what's out there. Mm-hmm. But you find out what's out there. Like, it's right. that's not the mystery. Right. Right? The, the issue I had with The Mist, on top of some really disturbing... The Mist, the TV show. TV show. Some really disturbing issues about uh, sexuality and gender. Yes. That. Yeah, it was real paternalistic and gross. Very weird. And um, and and it made it so that there were literally no characters that I gave a fuck about. I was that, like, that fuck was a real all of these people. <laughs> and it was a pity because I had great expectations for it, and this instead turned it into, like, it went in directions it didn't need to, and removed all a lot of the elements that made the story work. Sort of like I was talking about with the other story. Yes, gotcha. It's like just pull out all the stuff that made it intriguing. And now it's just kind of a mediocre story about people trapped in a shopping mall. Yeah. And we've seen yeah. that before. Yes, so, we have. Yeah, uh, there'll be a lot of discussion on that one too because it's it's a film that I really respect. It's hard to say that you like it. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about why too. But um, but yeah, you, I recommend everyone to see the film first because a lot of the impact is from an ending that is going to be a spoiler if you haven't seen it. Yeah, and please know that the ending was a surprise to people who had read the story because they change it dramatically. Not even like a little, like a fucking lot. Right. Uh, And and in kind of similar ways that this one wanted to. Yeah. But different and more extreme. So yeah, check it out. Check it out. I'm a little surprised given that this one had to undergo a theatrical or like a, a reshoot uh-huh. that the mist didn't do I that. Think That's the mist really interesting. Was also I think it's possible that what's its face was like, fuck you, I'm not doing well, it. But they Frank Darabont was like, eat a dick, this is not, my ending. It was not there wasn't as much at stake, I think. Maybe. It wasn't a big budget mainstream release. It was a movie that was doing a lot of stuff on its own. So I think that had something to do with it. Um, oh, I did want to, before we uh-huh. end end, okay. I did want to say thank you because we got a new five star, a new five star review. Oh, that's so lovely. thank you very much for the review. Okay. Uh, so if I get noticed that we got a review from you, I'll say thank you to you. I'm saying thank you to you. Who is it? It is BB&C Podcast. So okay. another podcast. 
Uh, they say Amity and Lemuel really know their stuff. If you're looking to a fresh modern take on some older classics, this is a podcast for you. It show really wants me to watch Desperation despite not being a Stephen King fan. Top tier episode icons. Oh, I make my episode icons fresh every week. So uh, oh, That was our theological discussion, I think. <laughs> so I thank you for that. Uh, if you right. like us and want to leave mm-hmm. a review... I do. Please do that. Uh, That's uh, through Apple Podcasts, and it's complicated, so I'm sorry about that. If you have questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to reach out at latecomerspod at gmail.com or on Twitter at latecomerspod or on Facebook at latecomers. Or you can search the search bar for Latecomers Podcast. I am going to try and start Instagramming. We'll see how it goes. I'll give you our Instagram handle when we have it again. Um, and until next time, I remind you to take your medicine, and we remind you, better, better late, late than, than never. never.